Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com. And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. Hey. Hey, you guys. How you guys doing? Doing well. It's an enjoyable day out here in Dumbo. It's been a big, uh, big week for us. I thought you were going to reference all the construction outside our office. Nope, I was going to talk about the app. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we launched this app, Evan. I don't know if you if you saw anything about it. First time hearing of this. Yeah, yeah. We launched an app. It's uh, free. It's for your iPhone and your iPad. Yeah. And uh, many people have tried it in the last week. It's been uh, uh, the uh, the response has been uh, totally shockingly amazing to us. Uh, we have gotten don't don't say shocking. You're not shocked. I'm you not shocked. I'm, I expect success in all my endeavors. <laughs> uh, but. The most the most interesting part of the response has been how much um, both readers and writers have uh, responded to the follow writers functionality in it. Um, we're like logging like thousands of follows a day for writers. If you're interested, maybe go on, um, go through the list of people whose podcasts you've enjoyed and follow them and you'll get their next article. Whose podcast are we about to enjoy, Evan? Today we're going to enjoy a podcast with Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes, uh, most people will know, is uh, hosts the show for MSNBC. He's, this is the first time we've done TV. I think so. I mean, documentary, if you count. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know Ben Anderson. But he's like the, fir- the it's first. It's the first time we've gone major cable channel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely it's big. It's big TV. Come on, uh, the show, Brokaw. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also, you know, before he was on TV, he was a writer, uh, and he worked for the Nation, and he wrote for Alt Weeklies, and uh, we talked a lot about that. What does it feel like to be on TV and have that kind of audience, and and what does it do to your? Did you talk life? about your uh, Rachel Maddow experience? I forgot to mention that I, I had personally been on Rachel Maddow. It'll it'll be in the show notes for anyone who's listening. Yeah, yeah. Tom broke out dead. <laughs> <laughs> Get out! Ah, isn't he dead? No, I think he's still alive. Tom Brokaw. Tom Brokaw is still alive, and I would like him to come on the show. <laughs> um, do we have any sponsors? We have several sponsors. We have several sponsors this week. Uh, the first, you guys may have heard of these folks, Tiny Letter. It's yeah. a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. They are doing a uh, residency for writers at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs. Go to residency.tinyletter.com. You can apply. It's uh, 10 days, all expenses paid. You have to get your application in by September 26th. Max judging. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm judging, judging that contest. Roxanne Gay judging. Other people judging. Uh, who's a, who, who are their sponsors? We got another contest today, no? 
We do. We do. Uh, our contest with EA Sports to find the greatest soccer article ever written uh, is still up for a few more days. The link is in the show notes. Submit your favorite article and you will have a chance to win. Uh, you'll have a chance to win a free Xbox One and a copy of EA Sports FIFA 15. One link, free Xbox. This sponsor, uh, I've actually pre-reserved. No one else in, in amongst us three is allowed to promo them because uh, they're so near and dear to me. GoDaddy. Uh, GoDaddy is releasing hundreds of new domains that tell people who you are and what you do. Uh, you can check them out. Uh, use the promo code FORM30. You get 30% off your order. GoDaddy.com. Thank you, GoDaddy. Here's Evan. It's Chris Hayes. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you coming in, and uh, not least because I know that you're just uh, you're just fairly recently back from Ferguson, where you spent some time. Um, and I actually thought that would be a good place to start. I want to rewind uh, a little bit later and sort of talk about how you ended up on TV, because I think we have a lot of writers on the show. It's mostly writers. Uh, in fact, I was kind of imagining a scenario in which you had never been on TV. You would also end up on this podcast through writing. Uh, but And a lot of the people on the podcast have been on your show, so there's like a lot of crossover, but uh, you've sort of been like catapulted or catapulted yourself into like a, a unique uh, situation uh, when it comes to being on TV. But I'm curious about about the Ferguson thing, just because it's like, you know, it's it's ongoing right now. And just as a way of kind of understanding how you work and and what you do, what what goes into first of all making a decision as the host of a show to say, okay, I'm going to pick up and go to Ferguson. Like, how did that come about? So that was it. Was really the first time that we'd done that. Um, uh, we've gone on the road a few times, but my background in journalism was as, as a reporter, mm-hmm. and I would go to stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. And I loved. I fell in love with reporting. I think when I started doing things where I would go to a community meeting on the South side or, uh, an evangelical colleges convocation where you're, you're in the back of the room and you're completely anonymous and you're just looking at what's going on and writing it down. And you feel like you're, you're witnessing things and you're and, and before the era of social media, it always felt to me like you're actually doing this kind of amazing thing, which is that you were pulling something from some track in which it would be forgotten by history mm-hmm. into some track in which it was on the record. Yeah. Like you're re- right. like you were literally recording. Now everything's recorded by everyone. But when I first started, I remember like a few moments where I was like, well, if I weren't here writing this down and reporting on this and what this person said at this community meeting and what this person said in this church, or what this person said about, um, you know, some organizing campaign they're doing, like it just wouldn't happen. Yeah. Like, I'm the recorder of this fact. Right. You're, you're pulling it out from, from a lost. The miss of time. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that was that was what I got started doing and why I fell in love with reporting. Ferguson was the first time that I went back to do reporting as a genuine broadcaster television host. Mm-hmm. We made the decision on the Wednesday night that was the last night of the Ferguson police overseeing the security situation in which they managed to arrest two journalists in a McDonald, yeah. uh, St. Louis Alderman, fire tear gas, uh, aim uh, loaded weapons at unarmed protesters and we I was on my way I was 10 minutes from my house when all this stuff went and started to go down on Wednesday night turned uh-huh. the car around came back to the live show at 11 and afterwards was supposed to go to Kemper Mississippi the next day to report on a clean coal facility there for uh-huh. a, a week of shows we're doing about coal country uh-huh. 
so I was already going to leave the next day, and we were like, this is crazy. We got to go there. Yeah. This is nuts. Um, and so we made the decision that la- night, and we got on the plane the next morning. And then uh, how do you sort of now, you know, it's uh, the way you describe, you know, sitting in the back of a community meeting. Uh, it's not quite the opposite of that now. It's the opposite. You get the, okay, it is the opposite <laughs> of that. It is, You've got to go set up somewhere. So You've got to be crazy. on camera. The, how, how do you even figure out where you where you go? Well, we had this, there's a guy named Rich Stockwell uh, who is this incredible veteran of field producing um, who went down to Ferguson and you got the NBC News architecture there so they had already been there and they had trucks and then we we just rented a place from a, a, a guy who owned a lot mm-hmm. um, near where everything was happening. We wanted to be on private property because literally the night before Al Jazeera in America's camera crew had been trying to set up a shot on the yeah. street and had a tear gas canister fired at them. That was crazy footage. And <laughs> so, then they came and like dismantled then they the dismantled. camera. So we were like, well, we have to be on... We need if we're gonna do this and we're gonna be able to continue to report throughout whatever goes on. We need to be on some patch of land that is someone else's right. private property where right. we will have the ability to tell the police. You can't tell us to get off. This is <laughs> yeah, we can be here. Right. Um, so th- there's a lot of logistics. There's a tremendous amount of overhead. The amount of overhead logistically and in terms of people was just a little overwhelming to me at first. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a lame metaphor, but then, you know, quantum mechanics, Heisenberg principle, which is that, you know, when you try to observe something, uh, a, a particle of light, you actually, to to observe it, you have to throw a particle of light at it, and so you alter its trajectory. Yeah. And so there's no way at the quantum level to make um, observations without altering the thing you're observing, um, which is partly the case about TV reporting. Like, right. Like you are walking around with a camera and the camera has lights or you're set up with lights and you're a little bit of a spectacle. You're a little bit of a carnival. You're a little bit of a object that is altering the trajectory of the particles as they would be in your absence. So you have to try to you have to try to mitigate that, deal with that responsibly and find ways to tell the story and report that aren't creating a distorted vision of what's actually happening. Yeah, that I, that's what I that that's exactly what I was interested in getting to is sort of like how you thought through the idea. I mean, this sort of like you know the ulti- this ultimate end of like the spectacle part in some way is like either like the reporter in the hurricane who's like getting blown yep. away, or you know when you pull back a shot and there's like twelve TV anchors doing stand ups yep. in front of something. But a lot of what you do is trying to bring, I think, complex topics to a medium that inherently sort of defies complex topics, that being sort of cable news in some sense. And so how did you think through like, okay, we want to go, we want to shine whatever spotlight we have on this, but I don't want to be the person who's like, now I'm the story. Because in some ways you did also, people threw rocks at you and you got tear gassed and you got threatened, the cop threatened to mace you and like things like that, which put you in the story. But how, how do you deal with that sort of duality of showing up? I don't, I think I hadn't pre-theorized it before I went because I never experienced it. Yeah. So it was, um, it was, it, the situation there was so crazy. Those first four or five days, it was so tense. It was so, and then it became a media spectacle, but the media spectacle was also part of it, just a very unstable situation. It yeah. felt very unstable. It felt like there was a moment, like when I went, I think it was the Friday of that first week we were there, where this um, young man, Kajimi Powell, uh, was 
killed by St. Louis police, municipal police, yeah. two and a half miles from Ferguson. And the one that he supposedly had a knife. Yes, that that's right. Yeah, and there's, right. there's video footage of it. Um, we drove there and the scene there was just on a knife's edge of like, oh, this could turn into a riot. Like it was hot. Yeah. People were furious. This person that people in the neighborhood knew was kind of a crazy dude had just been killed. It was two and a half miles from Ferguson. So like it's essentially a contiguous region yeah. <laughs> like North St. Louis and, and North County. And it was so unstable. And that the, I guess the reason I'm, I'm talking about that moment, it ended up being calming down. But the instability was so intense and the sense of anguish and frustration was so intense that there wasn't a ton of time to think through like, well, what is my role in this? Like mostly it was wake up in the morning after two or three hours of sleep and start going to stuff, talking to people and just keep doing that until the show happens and then just talk to people and record what you see. And as a byproduct, there was, you know, the rocks were thrown at me or the tear gas or whatever, but the operational minute to minute reality of just reporting in that environment was so kind of logistically overwhelming and also just sort of emotionally overwhelming because it was a very intense fraught situation that I was just never thinking about like, well, mostly I was thinking in the way that I would think when I was 24 and anonymous about reporting, which was who do we want to talk to? What side of the story haven't we gotten? How can we go find those people? If I walk around, can I run into this person? Like, you know, I happened upon the mayor and then I asked the mayor and then we got to talk to the mayor, which I was very excited about. And we got to talk to some of the people who were part of this I Heart Ferguson campaign, which is kind of the other side of Ferguson. Mm -hmm. People sort of, you know, not necessarily pro Darren Wilson or anti Mike Brown, but more their experience of Ferguson and Ferguson police was very different than the protesters experience. And they were, I think, kind of felt like the whole thing had come from Mars. Like, what is going on? And so my sort of guiding um, ethos while we were there was just essentially just go report. Yeah. Go see stuff, talk to people, get as much information as you can and just keep doing that. So there's no there's no time for like the inner TV critic. No, I mean, I think (laughs) afterwards there was and like and there were some press criticism about it. And there's a guy who had been a freelancer for Al Jazeera America who wrote this blog post that got a a lot of attention that was kind of angrily pissed off about the the circus atmosphere yeah he was sort of like then the circus came to town and now it's not about uh, yeah and you know what let me say that there's there was there was a lot to that that was right um there was also a lot of people who throughout the whole thing were just happy that it was getting covered too like it wasn't there was some anger at the press um there's anger on the press on both sides the cops were furious at the press the (laughs) town people that it 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 became a spectacle. There's no question about that. But it became a spectacle because people were furious. Like, I think that there was there was a certain segment of people that began to think that the whole thing was driven by the media. Yeah, that, right. Like, the, it was the media presence that was driving it. And that was just not true. And the thing I would always say to people is that before there was ever a single camera, before there was a single reporter, there were dozens, if not hundreds of people on Canfield Drive within an hour of Mike Brown getting shot, screaming at the police. Yeah, and they weren't doing it for TV cameras. No one knew that it happened except for those people. Like, I talked to a barbershop owner who was like, within 30 minutes, everyone left out the barbershop to go down there. Like, it was a spectacle before there was anyone to spectate it other than the participants. So I think some people overstated the case to think that it became this kind of, what's the Tom DeLillo most photographed barn in America like thing where right, it's right, like right, it, right. It, it is itself a spectacle because cameras are there and I don't <laughs> think that was the, the case right right 
Hey, it's your other host, Aaron Lammer here with a quick word from our sponsor, GoDaddy. GoDaddy is releasing hundreds of new domains that tell people who you are and what you do, including .guru, .club, .photography, and .expert. There are options for just about everything, and your chances of getting the name you want are now better than ever. Register the domain that helps people find you online before someone beats you to it. Visit GoDaddy.com and enter promo code FORM30. You're going to get 30% off your order, plus support this show. Some limitations apply. See the website for details. But guess what? I have another sponsor to tell you about. It's EA. Have you ever heard of EA FIFA? It's only the greatest video game ever made. EA Sports FIFA 15 is out this week, and we have an extra special contest for you. Here's how it works. You look in the show notes, find the link, send us your favorite soccer article, your favorite soccer article ever. Um, By submitting one, you're entered into a contest to win an Xbox One and a free copy of FIFA. You can't beat that. Uh, so yeah, send those in. We're, uh, we're checking out your submissions right now. Here's Evan back with Chris Hayes. You know, in the early nights, there was a lot of sort of uh, people on Twitter particularly saying, uh, CNN's not covering this. And uh, and I turned on, and you guys were covering, MSNBC was covering it. And But did you feel it all sort of like, this is a story for me. This story is of a piece with the type of reporting that we are, you know, shows that we've been doing yeah, for a yes. couple years. I mean, we, Mike Brown was, was killed in the afternoon of Saturday and we led our A block on Monday was Mike Brown. And that was really before the police response had become the story. It was just like a story of a kid who got an unarmed 18 year old teenager who was shot and killed by a police officer. Um, I'm pretty focused on criminal justice policing issues in some ways i think it's like in domestic policy the lowest hanging fruit Mm -hmm. like we just have this system we've built up over at this point almost 40 years 35 years if you sort of really 68 sort of watts riots happened in 66 mlk riots happened in 68 nixon wins in 68 on kind of law and order and that's really kind of the start of a trajectory of a kind of building up this kind of carceral state. Right, then um, you get the war on drugs. Then you get the war on drugs. All of that politics around crime, punishment, um, tracking and marking people as a certain kind of people who have a propensity to be criminal, which is a huge part of what that whole system's about in terms of uh, bench warrants, missed warrants, then you get pulled over for speeding, now you got a missed warrants, so now you got to go into jail, now you got a record, now you have a record, you can't got to report that when you go to try to get employed and like this sort of paper trail all of that is just massively destructive it's bad for almost everyone yeah. <laughs> involved uh it's a huge waste of human potential it's egregiously sadistically cruel it, it at its at certain points and it's massively racially discriminatory and i think there's space to break it up like mm-hmm. I think there's like there's there's possibility there's possibility. possibility there's real political possibility around it and so it's something that we've always focused on we we did a lot on stop and frisk we've done a lot on um, we've done a lot on war on drugs uh, and the sort of reaction to war on drugs and we've done a lot on on the experiment that's happening right now in Colorado and Washington just it, it's it's something that is close to me and it's something close to me I think personally because I grew up in New York in the 
uh, 80s and 90s. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So you you grew up in the Bronx, is that yep. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me a little bit about your, your parents. Why, why, why were you in the Bronx? So my, uh, my mom was born and raised in the Bronx. Her father owned an Italian deli in Arthur Avenue across from uh, Mount Carmel uh, uh, Parish. Uh, made mozzarella. <laughs> she and her mom and dad and two sisters lived uh, off Southern Boulevard on a street called Marion Avenue, uh, not too far from the Bronx Zoo. Um, my father was from a Northside Irish Catholic family in Chicago. He joined the Jesuits uh, right out of high school and was a Jesuit seminarian. Uh, spent a year in Peru in the sort of barriadas outside Lima. Oh, wow. Bounced around to, you know, Jesuits sort of move around through these different kind of stages and, and ended up at some point with uh, six or seven other sort of classmates uh, renting an apartment in the South Bronx because they were going to Fordham University. And the apartment they rented was the floor above the apartment my mom was in. Oh, wow. Um, and so that's how they met. Um, and my mom, my, my father obviously left left the seminary. Ah, uh, yes, the Jesuits, same, same as the Catholics yeah, on, they're that, Catholic. on that front. Jesuits are Catholic, so yes, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a yeah, chastity. <laughs> uh, so, Fortunately and, for you. That's right. Um, so my father was uh, already kind of becoming kind of radicalized and becoming... I don't radicalize the wrong word, but he's getting very involved in community organizing, mm-hmm. training as a community organizer. Um, and so what ended up happening is he he and a, a former seminarian friend started a, an organization in the Bronx that was called the Northwest Bronx Community and Clergy Coalition. And they were doing this, this community organizing in the Bronx at a time when the, the Bronx was, in the way we think about Detroit now, like the Bronx was that. The iconic example of urban decay, you uh-huh. know, Fort Apache, the Bronx is burning, tremendous amount of uh, arson that was happening because of property values and, and, and slumlords yeah. essentially trying to get, you know, it was a disaster. I mean, the Bronx in 1976, 1977 was, was in this kind of spiral, this downward spiral, um, massive amounts of white flight, uh, huge shrinkage of the, you know, the, the, residency rates, huge poverty, unemployment, crime, etc. So he was organizing in these communities where people were basically trying to like save these neighborhoods, community members uh-huh. from the kind of it's almost like it was like fighting a forest fire. You yeah. Know? Um, and a lot of it had to do with the, the, the relationship between landlords and renters where, you know, it was like community members wanted to sort of save these neighborhoods. Landlords were kind of like looking for any way to like cut their losses and get out. And so it was a lot of these tenant battles. It was a lot of, you know, organizing renters against absentee landlords. Um, and when you were a kid, did your father involve you in that? Did you, did you, were you had an awareness yeah, of what he was doing? Totally. And, yeah. He would go to meetings all the time. I remember doing, being part of big marches. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, it was interesting. The, the early eighties when I was, uh, you know, five and six was when the kind of crack era hit New York, mm-hmm. and and drugs became a big issue in in these communities. And I remember there sort of big marches to like take the streets back from the dealers. That we I remember one particular where we were on this huge march and just sort of walking through these streets, and there's like dealers on the corner, you know, and everyone's sort of screaming. It was, it was very. There was a real sense of embattlement and besiegement. And is this like you on your dad's shoulders? Yeah, or like, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. So yeah, so so I was in. I grew up in the Bronx. I grew up in this neighborhood uh, called Norwood, which is uh, near Montefiore Hospital, uh, sort of working class neighborhood that was very Irish immigrant in the eighties. There was this huge influx of uh, Irish immigrants in the eighties, 
uh, Ireland had sort of t- sort of economic basket case in that decade, and so a lot of people came over to the Bronx. Uh, this kind of milieu. My mom had been a, a public school teacher, uh, and she took time off for uh, me and my brother, and then she went back to do arts and education. She mm-hmm. was an educator and art nonprofit in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And this sort of milieu of my parents was all these really amazing people that were sort of around organizing social activism in the Bronx. Um, a lot of them had come out of Fordham. A lot of them had come out of this kind of lefty social justice Catholic tradition. Um, so, and that, and they had kind of created this community. Um, they put together a, a cooperative nursery school that I went to. We would get together on the weekends that they had kids that we would play with in the park. It was, it was, it was cool. And it was, I cannot stress enough how different in New York it was. Yeah. Like, Outer borough New York in the 1980s, like the Bronx in the 1980s, is like a different universe <laughs> than Brooklyn in 2014. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, the, my my parents bought a house, uh, a very small house in Riverdale, and we we moved there when I was about 11 or 12. I started going to high school in Manhattan, and then Brown, and then I Brown. went to and then I went to Brown. And wh- where where along the way did you uh, did you th- start to think about writing or? or not even as a career, but were you, you know, the kid who wrote op-eds for the school newspaper? Yeah, and like I was that? a little bit. I did. I like to write. I did write the op-eds for the school newspaper in high school. Um, my, my real passion was theater. I loved theater in high school. I wrote plays. I directed. I acted a lot. I sang a little bit. Uh, and that was also the case in college where I spent a tremendous amount of time uh, doing theater. Hmm. But sort of when I left college, started to think... I think I thought I would either do theater or be an academic and then decided that uh, journalism seemed like a cool way to basically continue learning for a living. Like it, was, it seemed like kind of an amazing con job if you could pull it off, which yeah, is that like- I always felt that way. Yeah. Instead of like paying someone to learn, which is what school is, <laughs> you can get someone to pay you to learn, <laughs> which is what journalism just is. Just go out and talk to people. <laughs> yeah. Just ready-made excuse to go talk to people. Yeah. But then you, you, the first pieces I saw of yours were, I think, either Chicago Reader or In These Times. Yep. So did you, did you say, I'm just going to go to Chicago and, and figure this out? How did yeah. you get into the door somewhere? Yeah, we, we, um, we moved to Chicago. My wife is from Chicago. We, we've been together since, we, we've been together in our 16 years. We've been together since we were 19. Um, so when we graduated, we decided to move to Chicago, mostly because New York just seemed prohibitively expensive. Um, and I wanted to do theater or write, and it just seemed like, well, am I really going to do that in New York? No, I'm going to if you're a starving artist in New York, you spend ninety percent of your time starving and ten percent of your time being an right. artist. Well, especially um, if you're already married. If you're if you're single, yeah, you could kind of yeah. like go live in some crazy ten right, roommate yes, situation exactly, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we moved to Chicago. We weren't married yet, but we were together. We moved to Chicago, and um, you know, I'd like to say, well, it was just plucky hard work, and you know, which which it was, but it was also the the fact that somewhat randomly, my father in law, my my um. My wife's father is a journalist, a political reporter at ABC News for 25 years in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he knew journalism people, and one of his friends was a guy who was an editor at The Reader. Um, and I had sent him my senior I'd sent him some stuff just being like, hey, might go to Chicago, maybe write for The Reader. And he's like, yeah, this stuff's, this stuff's okay. Yeah, just like send me something. <laughs> so I just like almost immediately moving there just like started trying to pitch stuff. Um, and I just pitched, and my first byline was a review of a – um, there was a design contest that the Chicago Housing Authority had put out to redesign uh, some homes on the west side called Abla, which they were tr- converting to mixed income. Uh-huh. And they had a little display. And so I just did a little review of like the sort of six entrance and 
it was like 400 words or whatever they ran it but it was like you know it's an amazing feeling you know yeah the names there and the articles out and this is back in the day of print so like you wait until thursday and then go pick up the reader and it felt like this is the most incredible thing in the world yeah like, it's all I, remember, the I remember taking the bus down because it would it would take a while like the way the routes of where they would drop the reader off would like work their way north and we were living on the far north side in andersonville and i remember to this day it was like winter like you know, seven degrees, like getting on the Clark Clark bus to go down to Lincoln Park because, like, I knew there was like a borders there. I was going to get it really <laughs> early to like get it and like see the byline. That first time, was, it's awesome. It's pretty amazing. Awesome. Yeah, and uh, and I looked. Uh, this is just kind of a funny aside, but I was looking back through your old pieces, and uh, one of the earliest ones for the Chicago Reader is a story about Rod Blagojevich winning his yes. gubernatorial campaign. By campaigning on the like uh, whiff of scandal yes. and corruption Anti around corruption, <laughs> yes, <laughs> clean, good government, yes. <laughs> and the premise of the story was this is a great way to win elections if the other side is just corrupt, right? Yes. And then Rod Blagojevich, yes. uh, he carried that all the way he around, did. yes, uh, to the end. Um, but also, I, I've I read a little bit about and I read this early piece. You had a very very long early piece, ten thousand words maybe. Uh, about this uh, woman who was a victim of domestic abuse, who was then uh, convicted of like pour- pouring hot oil on her, abuse yep. her husband, ex-husband, whatever it was. Yep. Um, tell tell me a little bit about like how did you jump from four hundred word reviews of uh, these plans to right. that piece? So my wife actually was working in domestic violence at the time. Uh, she was a she was a victim's advocate in the uh, through Jane Adams Hull House. There's a bunch of them that worked in this office that was actually in the misdemeanor domestic violence dedicated court. Mm-hmm. And this is a truism about uh, urban justice systems, which if it's the same in Cleveland, New York, Detroit, L.A., which is that a massive percentage of the case loads domestic violence. Um, it's true about being a beat cop. It's like, oh, what is the most common thing a, a beat cop does? Answer, domestic call. Mm. Right? That's that's a fact. Um, that's depressing. It is depressing. Uh, and so because the caseload is so high, they have these like devoted domestic violence courts. And domestic violence court, if you are the victim, is just this bewildering experience where it's like it's like this weird, aggressive, bureaucratic DMV, except like you've just been beaten up. And also no one really wants to listen to you. So sometimes like you have perfectly good reasons to not want to press charges, which is that like you will be kicked out of your home mm-hmm. and like you've made a cost benefit analysis mm-hmm. that like it's better to not press charges and have them come back and help with rent than to be thrown out of your house with your three kids. Yeah. And like that's your call, but no one wants to listen to you. Right. And this woman had been not listened to <laughs> so, many, many right. times. And so my wife was working as a victim advocate where they were like, there's someone in the system who looks out for you. And it was through her that we knew these lawyers that were petitioning for clemency mm-hmm. for this woman named Joy Brown. So we came to know her case because she was one of several that were petitioning. And and we started working on the article together. She and I, we were co-writing it. Oh. Um, she ultimately sort of stopped because professional reasons, like she had got promoted and she couldn't quite have her name on a piece about this. Hmm. And it was, that piece was really like my version of journalism school because we had a really good editor who, we did FOIAs. We went down and talked to her in prison. We And I didn't know how to do any of this. This was all just like... So this was someone at the reader saying, okay, now do this. Yeah, or me, or you us, just figuring out. me and Kate being like, well, we should go do this. Yeah. And then them being like, yeah, that's the right thing. And then like giving this in. And um, I'll never forget this one moment where I talked to his parole officer, the abuser. This guy had had several misdemeanors and two felony 
pleas on domestic violence and had never done a day in prison. Yeah, he'd done a little bit of yeah. jail. Meanwhile, his the woman that he abused had poured hot grease on him. She says after he broke in and raped her, uh, and she got six years. Yeah. So that was the the petition for clemency. And um, I remember the parole officer saying, "This is late in the stages of this thing. We've been working on this thing forever." And fact checking. This is like back in the day of like this is like right before the bottom fell out on Alternative Weekly is when like yeah. they had they were they made a lot of money. They ran all those classifieds. They were well-staffed, and they were very serious, rigorous places. Like, as serious and rigorous as you can find. Yeah. Like, it's just fact-checked to within an inch of your life. Like, run it through the lawyers. Like, real good, old-fashioned journals. Yeah. Max, my co-host, is from uh, Alt Weekly World, and he loves talking about he, a lot of people that we've had on sort of came through that world all, and, and were trained I was in the that last, world. like, Rebecca Chaster and I once joked about, like, we got, like, the last helicopter out of Vietnam <laughs> about, like, that, like, generation of journalists that were trained in Alt Weekly. Like, I'm like, the, I'm like the borderline. Like, it's like, <laughs> right after I left, it just, you know, the yeah. whole thing imploded. Um, and so, I remember this moment where my editor on that piece, who was this guy, Mike Miner, who's an incredible sort of uh, Chicago journalism legend, uh, was who was actually the guy that I'd first had connection with, uh-huh. a friend of uh, my father-in-law. I, had a, I thought I had a great quote. I talked to the parole officer off the record, and he had said about this guy, Damien was his name. Um, I think he'd said the guy's a deviant. And it was this really incredible quote, you know. And I remember Mike Miner being like, you can't use that off the record. I was like, why not? He's like, you can't let someone anonymously call someone a deviant. <laughs> like, and I just remember like that was like a real wake up moment of like, oh, right. What are the, because there's no book that's like, these are the rules for fair journalism. Yeah. You know, you just kind of learn them through the process of this where it's like, okay, yeah, you're right. It's not fair to let someone anonymously call someone a deviant. So I went back and actually got the guy on the record. And he gave me his name and called him a deviant, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is, but that's, you know, then you got a name attached to it. Like you, you're, you know, that's a, that's a fair thing. You were his parole officer. You had some, but, but you can't do it anonymously. You have to kind of stand in there and use your name. And then what was the impact of the piece? She got clemency. Yeah. I mean, it was, that was like a real, that, I think that was when I really felt hooked. Cause at that time I was, I was simultaneously doing a lot of theater, huh. working with a theater company there. I was the managing director. I was raising money. I was assistant directing. I was working on a play that I was writing that I wanted to get produced. So I was kind of like pursuing these kind of twin tracks at the time. And I thought I was still applying for theater jobs. There was a, there's a whole bunch of theater jobs, which if I had gotten, I think I would have wow. completely ended up in a different trajectory at the time. Um, but that was amazing. You know, that was an amazing feeling. He, I mean, uh, George Ryan, also who would then subsequently go to jail. <laughs> he was uh, governor at the time. Before. Yes, yes. Uh, Illinois had a pretty good run. Uh, George Ryan did all these very famous death row clemencies. Yeah. Uh, but in the after that big announcement, he also uh, commuted her sentence, and so she got out. So, and that was, the funny thing is that, like, <laughs> that was the first big piece I did, and it had this very concrete impact, and I don't think anything I've done subsequently has ever had such a direct causal impact. <laughs> like, it's tough to get that. It was sort of hilariously like, oh, this is how it will be, y'all. <laughs> I will crusade against injustice, and I'll report about it, and then, like, the world will fix it. But Yeah, it, it like, turns d- out. I've noticed that's happened with climate change. Like, you're yes, reporting climate exactly. change, and then suddenly- It's all done. We're down yeah. to 250 parts per minute, yeah. <laughs> So then you kind of moved into, you know, writing for the nation and and at some point moved to D.C. Um, 
And there's so, I mean, you, you wrote a lot for the nation. The archives of your writing are, are large. I read a lot of it. Um, and one thing that, that interested me sort of at a higher level is you, you sort of got into writing about both politics and uh, economics, like a, a very, very wide spectrum. And I'm curious sort of like what gave you the comfort to do that, to, to start kind of like weighing in, not just in reported pieces, you kept doing reported pieces, but you started sort of doing things that were half opinion, half reporting. And what, what did that come from your upbringing? Where did that come from mm. sort of feeling your college? Like, So I think parts of that, part of that is just personality and disposition, which mm-hmm. is like there's a certain part of me which like I'm not, I wouldn't like rank it as like my favorite personality trait, but it is like the, the five-year-old with his hand up in class, like <laughs> – you know that's been me like i have something to say yeah <laughs> i have ideas to share with you yeah and that's just part of my personality i don't know where that comes from my my parents aren't really like that my brother's not really like that um that's something that's produced by a whole set of like interlocking uh socialization factors and hierarchies around like white male privilege for sure. <laughs> like for sure and i you know that at 100% aware of that um so Part of it was that. Part of it was, I think I really, you know, as a philosophy major in college, and um, I was, I did a lot of, I did a fair amount of computer programming uh, for a while, mm. and I think I really, I derive tremendous pleasure from reporting, but I also derive tremendous p- pleasure from the sensation of working through an argument and the way it feels like a kind of Rubik's cube and like that unlocking where like you do you figure out how a step moves from A to B and then to C and then to D and like it feels like a working through a proof a little bit or it feels like s- debugging a program or mm-hmm. it feels like solving a Rubik's cube there's like a a deep intellectual satisfaction kind of like sensation of warm well-being that comes when something gets like cracked and good intense opinion writing when you're really when you're not just like here's my 600 word take which is what a lot of stuff is today and i've done those too i shouldn't like that's what i mean i basically do something like that every night so who am i kidding but (laughs) um that sensation is just a very satisfying sensation and so i think i just really loved that yeah. Like I loved and I miss that a lot about my current job. Like I loved I made very little money, but I had tremendous freedom and I would just go for a walk for an hour and just think through the arguments like and think of counter arguments and then think of the, how which of those counter arguments are legitimate and which aren't and which ones need to be answered and then if you answer them you sort of push yourself away from a certain kind of narrative propulsive force. So is there a way to kind of like preemptively and that kind of problem solving, I just still find, I miss it. I find that just really satisfying. And I think sort of reported features had their own kind of interesting Rubik's Cube, which is the kind of solving structural problems. Yeah. That's, you know, when you write a big, long reported feature, it's like I have all this material and all these facts and I need to sculpt it in some way. And and that's where you get that kind of sensation of like the, how do you structure it? But essays and opinion pieces where you're trying to make some point or make an argument like to have that, that deep intellectual satisfaction where you feel like you've kind of cracked the nut and so i think it was more that it was more pursuing the pleasure of that than the i need to weigh in although that was part of it too because like like i said it's a personality trait how did you first end up on tv like how did this sort of tv thing get momentum we moved to dc because my wife uh got a clerkship for uh justice john paul stevens on the supreme court not a bad gig no 
she is a absolute rock star <laughs> in every possible way. Uh, and so we moved to DC and then I just randomly, again, like tremendous luck, which is that David Korn had been the Washington bureau chief of the nation for 20 years at that point, just like got this great offer from mother Jones and went there. And so there's a vacancy and I was kind of the person who was in DC. So I became the Washington bureau chief, which I think was key to like getting me on TV because there is a thing about like, what's the, what's the lower third like in TV, like, Wait, what do you mean by like if I third? had you on? It would oh, be what like, would it say? What would it mean? say? Oh, and like, see, would that read to people as like, it, does does that string of letters subtextually convey that this is a person you should listen to? Huh. Right. So it's like, like if you say so and so citizen journalist, it's a little like you see that on your screen. You're like, well, okay. So so and so Brooking Institution, right? It's like, oh well, that's <laughs> a serious person, right? I'm not saying those are legitimate, <laughs> no, no, I know. Uh, normatively true, but descriptively, like there's yeah. a certain anyway. So I think the fact that I was. Washington editor of the nation like meant something like oh the nation been around since 1865 lefty paper Washington editor. yeah um, questions about Washington you right know who to ask so I wrote this piece that year uh, 2007 when we moved there that is a piece I still love actually uh, it's called the, the about the NAFTA superhighway mm-hmm. and it was this long feature sort of in two parts one was about the kind of very fertile right-wing conspiracy about that they were building a NAFTA superhighway that was going to be like four football fields wide that was going to like run from Mexico to Canada and like it was like this it was and it was coming up and this 2007 so it was like early presidential and like in these Iowa town halls like every Republican candidate got asked about it it was like this whole you know there's been similar things since then like Agenda 21 is one of them like Agenda 21 is like this like ridiculous like global set of like green development yeah, practices yeah, yeah, that yeah. like Alex Jones is convinced is going to be the FEMA yeah. camps whatever so the first half of it was about that and then the second half was like actually there is a kind of kernel of truth this which is this crazy high, highway project they're doing in Texas called the Trans-Texas Corridor uh-huh. so it was kind of this fun kind of mystery solving where it's like well, what's the origin of this and then you get to it and then it's like oh there actually is this thing and then actually this is really problematic the thing they're trying to build in Texas and here's yeah. why so I wrote this big piece and C-SPAN Washington Journal had me on to talk about it. That was my first time in TV. As TV goes, getting on C-SPAN is sort of the least like shouty right, exa- thing yes, you could be. Yes, it's the least shouty, and it's also like the e- it's the lowest barrier to entry. Right. Um, and so I think I did okay. I mean, I like to talk, and I talked. And then the thing about television that's hilarious is that like if you want to predict on day, like on day T, you want to predict who's on television. Look at day T minus one. Right. right. Like that's the truth about television booking. <laughs> And so, like, well, then I had been on TV. So then it was like, well, we sent that, you know, DVD to at this. This was 2007 when Countdown was really cresting with Keith Olbermann. Yeah. Um, You know, it was when that show was really kind of becoming this kind of like galvanizing cultural force where like there had never been like liberal, aggressive liberal television in the way that there was. Yeah. And he kind of went on those like aggressive like commentaries and commentaries. Yeah. And so. This great press guy at The Nation, a guy named Ben Wiskita, who I'm still friends with, um, just like contacted Countdown. And one of the bookers there, a guy named Greg Cockrell, who works for me now, put me on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, eventually it was, you know, there was a few times I was going to do it and canceled and blah, blah, blah. But eventually it was like, okay, we'll take a flyer with this guy. And we, and we have evidence that he could talk on TV. And I think, you know, I think I had a sort of natural aptitude for it. Um, and again, it's a combination of aptitude and also like path dependence. Mm-hmm. It's the T, T minus one right, thing. Yeah. And so, you know, within a year, it was like I was on like four days a week. Yeah. 
uh, like all the time. It was just like every night, you know. And I know now why that happens because someone who could entertainingly, dynamically, crisply talk in a four-minute segment about whatever the issue is, like, it's a weird skill set. Yeah. This shit is hard. I've been on TV. You, you think, like, I know exactly what I'm talking about on this, but actually, like, hitting the marks? Yes. But it's a skill. It is a skill, and I think the hardest thing to teach is just to be authentically yourself. Yeah. Because, I mean, the weird thing about talking on television is that every single person down to my two-year-old, like, knows how to talk. <laughs> like, like, that's not hard. <laughs> like, that is, like, universally human. Um, it's not being mechanical, robotic, nervous, whatever. And so for whatever reason, I think I had a genuine, like, I didn't care in a weird way. Like, I wasn't trying to be on TV. I wasn't like, it was cool. And then people started recognizing me. And like, all that was awesome. But it was like, the way I'm talking to you now is the way I would talk on TV. Yeah. That Uh, seems to be still, still true today. I think it is true. I think it's a little, I think, I think in my the way that I read prompter has gotten news anchory, more news anchory. Mm-hmm. I think in like a a good way. Like I think there's a certain kind of like a certain technical polish that I have applied. Yeah, that is good. You know, necessary. But I think in interviews and exchanges, I basically still talk like I talk. Yeah, the one uh, area that seems tricky for me, not not having had to do it, is is humor. Just because it's actually a little more. I mean, to take take you back I don't know to your theater background in a way like if the stuff is sort of written or thought about before and then you have to say it yes that's much more performative than yes, humor totally. would be in an everyday situation yes it is it is performance I mean there's no question particularly now like hosting is yeah there's a massive difference between being a guest and a host just massive so I was a guest a guest a guest and then I was doing Rachel and Keith and then it, it was in January or February 2010 where I got a call from one of Rachel's people being like, Rachel is going to be out. Would you want a guest host? Uh-huh. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> Were you like, whoa, yes, absolutely, or whoa, like, let me just think about this before I no, want I this to whoa, happen? No, I was, whoa, yes, absolutely. Okay. I went to New York, and I guest hosted. Um, and the next day, like, at 4.15, I got a call from the president of the network being like, that was amazing. And the and the significance of that in our industry is that ratings come out at 4.10. <laughs> which at the time I didn't know <laughs> and that president is not one who pretends that he doesn't look at the ratings no, the second that they arrive no yeah. no those numbers just they they run they run everything and so I signed a contract and I became a kind of guest host yeah then into your own show was there was there a moment where you understood or were awed by the this sort of like power of it this sort of audience of it there was a moment of panic I had when I got off the train back from New York having hosted uh-huh. and a few people recognized me in Union Station and I had been I was at that point getting recognized a fair amount because I was on these shows all the time yeah but I did have a moment of like did something really fundamental just change in my life <laughs> I remember thinking that and being a little panicked by it I mean does it feel like something fundamental did change in terms of your private life Yes, but there was never a moment where it felt fundamental, except for that moment. Yeah. And then the rest of it has been so gradual. It's funny. I had a moment, a really interesting moment in Ferguson where um, I was on the same block that Anderson Cooper was, and Anderson Cooper rolled up, uh, and 
he was stopped for photos like 15 times within a minute. It was just like, I mean, Anderson Cooper is a celebrity. Yeah. Like he is a very famous person. For real. I am not. People recognize me, but like watching him operate in that space, and I have a lot of uh, respect for Anderson Cooper. I, I, I think highly of him generally. Um, it wasn't quite Brad Pitt level, but it was like, you're a celebrity. Yeah. Like, Every single person who sees you wants to take a picture with you. That would seem to make real reporting it's near hard, very hard. You have a gravity to you, like a force of gravity. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That... I think it is very hard. I think in his case, it's just it's left to staff members and producers, you know, right. to, because you can't. It's like Anderson Cooper just can't go to like a diner and hang out and talk to people because right. like everyone knows that it's Anderson Cooper. <laughs> um, I basically still can. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people recognize me, but it's not like it won't like so altered the, the 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 atmosphere in the room yeah um, i wanted to touch on that that sort of like memorial day soldiers thing not not to not to harp on it because i know you've talked about it a lot and you apologize for it on air and we don't need to get all the way into it but i was curious about it seemed like a moment where it would it would cause you to do thinking about like whether you want to be on tv mm-hmm. if, if it was yeah, me that yeah. they'd just be like holy fuck i said this thing i talk for like an hour every day and I said one thing and now right. people are going nuts over it and I'm curious sort of like what did you feel when horrible you did- <laughs> <laughs> I felt it was it was a real wake-up call and I think that it was a real defining moment like there are boundaries mm-hmm I felt I felt horrible for two reasons one it was just like the avalanche of invective right the the real reason I felt horrible is I was getting these emails that were genuinely hurt and anguished. Yeah, like you read one on the air. Yeah, and like they, they that made one. I felt crappy about making people feel bad about something that was the source of just tremendous heartache, grief, and anguish in their life. Like that, like more than anything, that was the emotional core. But there's also just like feeling a hunted animal. Like, yeah, like being in the middle of one of those. And I've now watched other people go through those. It's just a ritual of our public life. It's just a, it's a horrible feeling. Did um, it create a voice in your head going forward? I mean, I felt like you dealt with it in a very uh, authentic, sincere way, and that kind of helped it not be something that sort of stuck to you or yeah. caused them to say like, yeah. "Well, we can't give this guy a show." Yeah. But did it did it create a boundary for you where you said like, "Okay, there's there's places I don't want to go during the show." I wouldn't put it in those terms. In that, I don't think what I would say is there's nothing that I would say. I, there are things I don't want to go to, but there is a heightened level of care. Like I now have these sensors that I didn't have before that moment. Mm-hmm. Interior or, sensors, yes, yeah. Not, and I don't mean sensors as in like um, like censorship or censorious. I mean sensors in S E N S O R S. Like like they go off as in like oh 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 someone's in that part of the building. Uh-huh. <laughs> And like, and everyone who works in this industry does. And a great example of this is Sean Hannity the other night. And it's funny because you now you watch cable news in a totally different way. Not that I watch much cable news, but when I do, you watch in a different way because you know, like, you kind of know the interior monologue of the person. And he <laughs> Even had Sean Hannity. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Like Phil Phil Robertson's on the Duck Dynasty guy, and he's talking about ISIS. Let me tell you about this whole ISIS situation, which is like a hilarious booking <laughs> for a billion reasons. <laughs> and he's like. Yeah, I'd like to do Bible study with him, but if you can't convert him, like you got to convert him or kill him, basically. And Sean Hannity, because he's a pro, and he, and in some ways, it's like I'm in the same game as him, so I'm not even going to front. Like I'm better <laughs> than Sean Hannity. Like, <laughs> like we're all in the game, and it's like Sean Hannity 
his sensors go off where he's like, he knows that's the sound bite. Yeah. He knows, he knows like convert or kill. Yeah. He knows it. Like you get acclimated to knowing and he knows what he has to do, which is what you do have to do, which is that like when things are said on your show, you own them unless you step out of your way to call them out. Uh-huh. You don't have to say like, that's ridiculous. You just have to point out that there's a distance between the thing articulated by the other person and, and you. And so he says, well, I know how the media is going to be. They're going to say convert or kill. He, he, he does that. Yeah. And, Phil Robertson doubles down. They move on, but but that was right in that moment. That sensor of like, oh, a thing was just said that's going to be a thing, and I need to deal with it. Like I have that now. Yeah. And if you don't, you'll blow yourself up. Yeah, for sure. You like you won't last. Like that's it is. It's a death sport. Uh-huh. <laughs> in a not in a literal sense, obviously. Um, talking about controversial topics live in conditions in which there's tremendous pressures to be provocative or interesting or whatever. And there's this microscope. And also there is this thing where, like Rush Limbaugh, okay? It's like if I asked you what's, you know, what's Rush Limbaugh shows like? I'm a bad choice because I actually listen. I have like a weird habit of listening to right wing talk radio. So oh, I you do? To like okay. A ton of right wing talk so, radio. So <laughs> then you, then you're, th- you know this from the other end, which is that like your, your median Brooklynite knowledge of Rush Limbaugh is 15 clips oh, yeah. from a guy that talks three hours a day, yeah, five right. days a week, 15 hours a week. There are right wingers who only know five things I've ever said, right? Yeah, and, and think that I'm like this just ridiculous kook, this like just insufferable America hating, veteran denigrating, like radical maniac weirdo idiot caricature of liberal Brooklyn decadent. You know, like yeah. that is based on a sample size of seven things I've said in a 18 months of broadcasting or 20. And we all do that. Like, that's the weird game that we all have. It's like there's this stuff on all the time. There's a small number of people in the general sense who are watching it all the time. Yeah. It's still a lot of people in absolute terms. A million people watch my show every night, more or less, between the two programs. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. When you say, oh, a million, you had a million total viewers for this hour or whatever, that is every minute of that program, an average of a million total viewers. Mm. Like, there is no website that... At, in every minute, there's a million people on it. Yeah. Or maybe there are, but it's like Google. I mean, I don't know yeah. what the... Magazine, newspaper, no. The point being that, like, you understand that, like, this is the game. This is it. And so that the Memorial Day moment was my introduction to that. And so... And does that constrain opinion and debate in some way? Un- unequivocally, yes. Like, unequivocally. It mm-hmm. has an effect that limits debate. That lefty media critique I grew up with that is true yeah but it's true for a reason that I didn't think it was true it's true not because of like corporate control (laughs) it's true because of blowback culture it's true because of that shitstorm going right down the middle is the safest place to be to some extent although you still have to get enough controversy for people to watch and things like that Um, well the the a kind of interesting aspect of that I feel like is you understand you might understand the blowback aspect better because you seem to you know live in the way of a modern writer in the Twitter and media world very comfortably and you kind of like engage on Twitter in a typical way and you seem to grab stories from I grab stories is the wrong word but like you know be sensitive to picking up things that appear somewhere the best example I think of is Cord Jefferson who was on this uh, on this podcast early on, he did this piece for Gawker that was about like 
the white violent culture because it was yes, just like yeah. riot in Huntington Beach. In Huntington Beach. <laughs> After and you a did surfing this, competition. Yeah, you did this segment of TV, which was one of the most interesting like segments on cable TV I've seen in a long time, where you just took it as like a straight, it was, you know, satire, basically, satire of a perspective. Yeah. And uh, took it as like a straight TV uh, segment. Is that, how did, how did these shows come about? Do you go in and say, like, I saw this thing, uh, we should do it? What's the, Give me a little bit uh, about how the you, workflow. Yeah. So I am constantly trying to drink off the fire hose. I mean, yeah. it's just constant. If the intellectual challenge of solving an argument is like a Rubik's Cube, this is much more like playing a first person shooter. Like, stuff coming out of you. Yeah. Like, duck, duck. Like, that's like, that's the experiences, like the sensory stimulative experiences. Stuff is coming out at you and process, 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 process. So, my entire life revolves around some kind of constant thrum of like that processing. Yeah. Of, like, oh, did, did the world, did someone bomb anyone while we were like doing this podcast? No. Okay. No, good. No one's bombed anyone. And then immediately filtering it into our, will we or will we not will do, we do it? Do we want to do, do it? Is, do we have to do it? If we have to do it, how do we do it? How do we, so there's a note that we have every morning. That's like the note, which is the sort of compendium of stories of the day, which is done by one of our producers. That is, sort of a combination of like, well, here are the big stories like Ebola. Here are kind of uh, political stories. And then here are kind of like stories that are kind of our thing. And that last part will often be derived largely from me sending stuff around the previous day or that night or the morning being mm-hmm. like, oh, let's blah, blah, blah. Let's talk to this. So then you have that. Then you have an editorial meeting where you try to come up with the rundown for the show. When I got the show, my posture was like wide open curiosity which was kind of up's posture yeah and then i think i felt like that was the morning that was the saturday yeah that was the show. saturday was sunday morning i think i felt like that doesn't work in prime time because it's not like dynamic and compelling enough and people like there's a certain cognitive load that you have to be managing in the viewer all the time that you don't want to cross some threshold because it's eight o'clock and people have been thinking all day hmm. uh and I don't begrudge them that because I, frankly, just want to watch sports or, like, <laughs> um, when I get home. I think we pivoted from that to something that was more, like, for lack of a better word, more focused on politics, more focused on kind of the fight every day. Like, mm-hmm. John Boehner did this and and more kind of red meaty, for lack of a better word. Um, and, like... There's bad red meat and good red meat, you know? Like, there's, like, there's like really lame, like, some third-rate state rep said something dumb, and we're going to beat him up over it. Right. And then there's, like, this state is, like, stopping people from voting. And it's like, well, that's, you know. There's this kind of calculation you're making all the time in your head of, like, what will rate, what's demand for. And I have now, I'm coming up on 18 months, no, no, on 16 months of this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just don't know. And I don't think anyone knows. You can't predict it. Like, no one knows. This huh. is the key. Not only do I know, no one knows. And so, in the last three or four months, my approach is like, let's do the news. Like, there's this sort of crossfade that's happened in which the 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 rundown judgment of, like, well, what do people want to watch and what is their demand for and what will rate has slid down. And, like, what is our editorial judgment of what is most important, newest dramatic and that's not to say like precious like oh there's this 50 page 
report from a think tank that's very important capital i like i'm not i have no interest in like boring people <laughs> so there's always a calculation of like what's dramatic what's interesting what's compelling what's dynamic mm -hmm. but that has been more of a news judgment like we've done a lot more leading with ukraine or isis or um you know big stuff happening in the world than like john boehner suing the president right we've done john boehner suing the president but we don't like, I think there was a period in the trajectory of the show where I would have led with John Boehner suing the president because, like, that's, like, the red mediest thing. Yeah. And now it's, like, I just have decided more or less that I trust my news judgment and I trust my journalistic judgment more than I trust my judgment about ratings. <laughs> and so, like, why not go with the thing that I trust? Yeah, all things being equal. All things being equal. Yeah. Um, because I don't feel like I've ever figured out some, like, magic key to, like, what we'll rate. You also wrote this book, which came out in 2012, um, and it struck me that I just said somewhere in the book that you'd been working on it for two years. And so when you sort of started out writing it, you probably were not, had no presence on TV. And by the end of it, you sort of did have mm -hmm. not the one you have now, but you started to have one. And, uh, and this book is not, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an intellectual book. This is not a book, uh, that like those Rush Limbaugh books that right. he sort of tosses off. Picture of me on the cover. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, in the context of writing that book, I was, it sort of got me thinking about what do you view the trajectory? Like, is there anywhere to go from TV than TV? Like, could you right. see yourself saying, no, actually, I want to go write serious books? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'll be a nightly broadcaster for the rest of my life. What would, what would, what would stop it? There's a lot of other things I want to do. Mm -hmm. um, I want to write a television pilot I want to make a documentary I want to go back and write a play I want to write another book maybe I want to write a novel I want to figure out new video f news forms that work on mobile that are people are going to watch in the 2030 and not you know like when not attached to a cable at night at like there's just a lot I want to do I like I love this job it's an incredible opportunity it's you know it's a sort of miracle that I have it um I sort of cherish the platform that it gives me every day it's mm -hmm. you know it's grueling and difficult but it's very rewarding work um but there's just like lots of different parts of me that are interested by a lot of different things um and i miss there's certain things the thing that i we've been doing recently more that i really like is like these sort of long-form feature reported packages in this series we've been calling all in america where like we go on the road and we talk to people and then we like craft together a story and we did like this 25 minute thing on chicago's crime statistics mm -hmm. and we did uh a, a small rural hospital in a white town in North Carolina with a Republican mayor who's pissed off about Medicaid expansion and we did um, desegregation in a Brooklyn school and we're doing a whole week on coal stuff. I was down in uh, Harlan County and that stuff, like I did this Showtime series which just won the Emmy for best nonfiction series uh, called Years of Living Dangerously which yeah. about climate and yeah, I did yeah. two pieces for them where I did like, like sort of like 60 minutes magazine style documentary long form reporting where like you're actually doing reporting. You're you're doing it over a long period of time. You're really cutting together something that's like really revised. You know, like the cable news is your first draft every night. It's the first draft. Right. It's it's, it's just that the time. Like whatever you can get out. What it, what is it? It's eleven twenty three right now. Like m the green light is going to come on in eight hours and thirty seven minutes, <laughs> and every second is a second towards that. Like no matter what. Yeah. That green light comes on in eight hours and thirty seven minutes, in which. I have to have an hour of television to talk to people. So if it's 7.50, I'm like, I hate this block. It's like, sorry, go sell it. <laughs>
Um, so, so I miss like revision and that aspect. And so I can imagine like I've really fallen in love with television as a medium because it's incredible how much can be conveyed when you have images as well as words. Yeah. Uh, Plus the audience. But I would like to, in some future iteration, use it more fully than cable news allows you to use it. Um, you know, cable news is a form that is reverse engineered around a set of uh, production and cost realities that you then do the best with that you can from mm-hmm. a constraint standpoint. Mm-hmm. It's not created around like what is the best way to tell a story on television because like that's like a person talking is not the best way to tell a story on television. <laughs> so so there's lots of stuff I'd like to do in the future. And I I, I have like this list on my computer of there's just like there's essays I want to write and books I want to write and solo shows I want to write for stage and plays and movies and television shows and, and I don't know work on getting solar to the developing world I, I there's just a lot of different things i want to do uh but right now the green light uh awaits you it does now. so thanks a lot for coming by thank really you this is great it. that's it for this week thanks for listening to long form podcast i am your co-host evan ratliff thanks to my co-hosts Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and our intern, Rachel Mabe. And thanks to Chris Hayes for coming on. A special shout-out to Brian Metopoli, who works on The Chris Hayes Show, for helping make that happen. Uh, you can catch us here next week. You can download the Longform app, which is free. And you can also uh, pick up the new Atavis Story, the latest Atavis Story, which is called uh, 52 Blue by Leslie Jameson. And thanks to our sponsor, GoDaddy. Uh, The promo code, again, is FORM30 to save 30% on any order at GoDaddy.com. Listener.